Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on 9 to Noon to help you navigate family life. Former Families Commissioner and psychologist Dr Jan Pryor and her husband Jim lost their baby son, Alexander, 37 years ago. Alexander was their third child, just four months old when he died, leaving the family floundering in a gaping hole of grief and loss. Nearly four decades later, Jan Pryor has written a beautiful book about Alexander's life and death and what she's learned about living with grief. It's called After Alexander. Jan, good morning. The book, based on your diaries from the time when he died, 37 years ago now, why did you want to write the book and now? I didn't want to write a book at the time. Um, I've always been a scribbler, and I've always found writing a way of understanding and experience. And um, as I came closer to retirement, I realised that the story was still there, kind of um, wanting to be written in a way. And I also realised that if I could tell it, um, it would be not just telling the facts of a child dying, but it, it would be opening up this whole experience for other people who have very similar experiences. And it's not just cot death, it's stillbirth, it's miscarriage, uh, it's even infertility in a way as a loss of a child. And it's the loss of anybody in a way. It's grief, it's the fact you never get over it, but you learn to live with it. Exactly. It becomes a part of yourself. And, you know, one wouldn't want to get over it. Um, that feels like forgetting the child. And, of course, you don't do that. Um, but it, beca- it, it becomes part of you, of your experience. And in my case, it changed me a great deal. Um, I say for the better. <laughs> learning to live with it and the various phases of learning to live with it and the experiences that others would recognise and go, yes, that was me too, in whatever circumstance... Is this part of it in some ways? Is it a gift to others in some ways? I would be very happy if people did see it as a gift. I wrote what happened to me. Um, if I hadn't written it that long after, I wouldn't have really understood what was happening. It was as I was writing that I began to see those links and threads that pulled together um, for me in particular, um, for the family to some extent, that made us stronger um, as a result. And still honours Alexander's little wee life. Getting launched tonight, I think, Thursday night. It's launched at the Women's Bookshop, yes, in Ponsonby Road. Take us back then. You were a young mum of three. You were in England where your husband Jim was working for a year as a GP. And as we said, Alexander was just a four-month-old. It was an ordinary sunny spring day, any other day, until... 
Well, until I went to, I put him to bed in the afternoon and he wasn't a very good sleeper and I had with my sister planned to take her baby and my children for a walk in the fields, it was spring, and I went up and he was wriggling and I thought, oh gosh, I have time now, I can go down and make sandwiches. The children came in from the school bus, the other two, and when I went up he was unconscious and my sister who was a nurse resuscitated him but she never brought him back to consciousness and so I called my husband, we went to the local hospital who didn't know what to do, they did a lumbar puncture and then we had an extraordinarily nightmarish trip in an ambulance to London with, with a police escort and he was on life support then for two days until we were um, we had to turn him off, really. Um, this is not the usual ex- um, experience of cot death, by the way. Most people find their babies in the morning dead. Um, that didn't happen to us. Unfathomable. Uh, th- there are there aren't words to describe the experience in those early moments, hours, and days. How can you best describe the early time, realizing your beautiful little boy had gone, was gone. Do you not even get to that point for a while? <laughs> you don't, because we had two other children to protect um, and look after and love and hug. Uh, we had things we had to do, which uh, kept us from really realising. We were in shock, I think, but we behaved like automatons. We had, there was a, there was a post-mortem and then we um, organised a very um, inadequate funeral at a, at a um, at a crematorium and it was after that when I was back in the house and the children were at school and Jim was back that I realised just uh, the shock really set in I suppose It must be a dream and nightmare going through all those stages and then you have what you describe as a huge Alexander sized hole in your lives and this is your reality and again in those early stages what are the things that one experiences that you wouldn't automatically think of the fear around your other children is is one insight. The 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 lack of trust in the world anymore. All of that um, at the time, it was the difficulty that <coughs> people had in offering any sort of comfort, and then the difficulty I had in accepting it. And in the book, I talk about people saying perhaps the worst one, which was um, it was meant to be. I found that incredibly offensive. Um, people tried. Um, some people avoided. Me, um, particularly mothers of other babies, it was as if we were contagious. Um, The people that um, were the most helped were the people who said, tell me about him, what was he like? Um, Describe him, and and who hugged me a lot, and um, let me talk. Again and again and again and again, you just want to talk. Most people don't do that because you feel as if you're imposing on people. So that immediate reaction and experience was quite difficult. Um, but it was a surprise to me that after a few months I began to feel very lucky, very lucky that I'd had this little baby um, and began to feel some joy in having um, had had the experience of him. That business of what people can say and do, I, I think that point you just made there is the vital one. People just want to talk about their loved one. They just want to talk... You're not doing them harm by bringing it up. No, you don't have to no. say anything clever. No. 
in fact, you're probably not going to say anything <laughs> clever. It is just no. opening the, the conversation and letting someone talk. Yes. It's very tempting, I think, when you're comforting people to say, do you know that my grandmother had a baby who died? And then go on and tell you about that. Um, one of the more difficult ones was, was our next-door neighbour, and I talk in the book, who came over and said, that, well, my cat died, so I know how you feel. People are trying, and I'm not really judging them, but what I'm suggesting is that you can do better than that when somebody loses somebody. And people aren't going to know how you feel. Nobody knows how you feel till they have had the scale of experience, but not to let that get in the way of, of reaching exactly. out and mainly exactly. listening. Talk to me. What do you want to say? Listening is the big thing. You yeah. also mentioned that the person, and, and this is understandable as well, I imagine, in, in the state that you're in, it's hard to receive anything that anyone is trying to give you. So what does that mean? Tolerance from, from everyone else, people being tolerant, that someone is in an extreme situation and, and, and be tolerant and don't be afraid of, yeah. of connecting. It, it means that. It means asking what would help. I mean, sometimes it would be something like, let's go to the movies. Um, I think, ask, as you say, listening, asking some questions, open-ended questions and asking what's going to be help. And, of course, we all know that nothing in the end really helps, but there, is some, there are some things that are very uh, comforting. That acknowledgement is a, is a big one. It is a big one, yeah. You had to be kind to yourself too, and this took some time, and it's very instructive, the inclination to blame oneself. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. interestingly for the children to take on a sense of, of blame, because everyone's experiencing this. Tell us a little more about what was happening within the family as people... I think uh, I was very unaware at the time of what was really happening. I know that um, my husband and I wanted to focus very much on the children. We were extremely protective of them. Um, we did what I think we should have done, which was to tell them exactly what had happened. What we didn't say enough, and I can't um, offer this advice strongly enough, is to say to them, it was not your fault. And my daughter, my older daughter, has even recently said to me she spent a very long time blaming herself because she thought she had asked me for a peanut butter sandwich and that was why he died. Children are egocentric and they take it on themselves, so please uh, keep telling your children it's not their fault when something like this happens. The blaming of yourself, I imagine, is part of that experience of how could this happen, what could I have done, and what sort of things were you doing to yourself and was Jim doing to himself at the time? Well, um, to answer the Jim bit first, I don't know, because he went back to work and um, he was kind of expected to carry on. And here I was in my messy grief, not really seeing that this was happening. Um, but uh, looking after myself, I didn't really do very much to look after myself. I didn't know what to do, really. Um, the children, we got on with life. I mean, we went uh, for a trip in the continent in the van, and um, but there was always this pervasive sadness with us that, that went with us. What is so beautiful about the book, and it's your skill as a writer, is how you are able to get us as close as we can be who haven't experienced it to, to the mind games and the, and the awful repetition. But tell me about the sadness uh, and its pervasiveness and then, as we said, over time how you began to live with a grief that would stay with you or a truth that would stay with you. One of the hardest things about um, SIDS or cot death is that there is no explanation. That's the definition of SIDS. Um, there isn't an explanation for why your child has died. If my child had died of an infection or had been in a car accident, that would still have been horrific, but I would have known why. And not knowing why 
is very, very hard, and I struggled terribly with that. Um, as as you know, in the book, I explained that I'm, if not an atheist, I'm certainly agnostic, so I wouldn't and couldn't turn to um, religion as, as support. So I lived myself with that uncertainty of having no idea. I still don't know why. I have... I have my own theories about it, which are to do with part of the brain not functioning very well, and I talk a lot, a lot about that. The sadness is just all around. You know, it's in, in the bed, it's in the meal, it's in, it's just everywhere. Um, but at the same time, we uh, were struggling as parents to make life as ordinary as possible for, for our kids. And it was after <clears throat> probably two or three months that we began. I began to realise that that the sun was still shining that um, I'd had this absolutely delicious little baby and that I was lucky and I was starting to forgive myself, forgive other people and realise that um, I was going to come through this. You, you, we, we mentioned the children and you mentioned they need to be told again and again and again it's not your fault, it's nothing you've done. Um, how difficult to continue parenting those other children when you are in the depths of despair? It's adding a whole extra burden uh, to, to, the, to the job and, and were you conscious of that at, at, at that time? I don't know whether I was conscious of it but I think in some ways it was a good thing um, had I been by myself and I feel terribly um, for for people who lose their first baby that might have been even harder yes. because at least I had a distraction um, with the children Getting beyond the guilt is the word we'll use but the guilt and the continuous questioning and, and the what ifs and the whys does that ease? Oh yes, it does ease. It, it eases a great deal. I think the next big step in all of this was deciding whether or not to have another baby. And I think for anybody who's lost a child in this way, that's a very big question. I had to be very sure uh, that I wasn't replacing Alexander. And I made, I've again talked about that in the book a lot. He, this, the next baby was not to replace, and of course I knew I'd be anxious for the for the next baby, because it, it had happened, and so we had a very clumsy monitor for for her, and um, I I was worried, I was a, I was anxious, but I don't think I was over anxious, um, and when she was five months old, I took that monitor off her, and that was a wonderful moment because I realised then that we'd all come through, and that um, we were going to be okay, that she wasn't going to die. As I said, also that loss of trust in life. Yes. You know, this isn't yes. things that should happen to no, anyone. It no. certainly shouldn't happen to me. And you lose your trust. You lose your trust. But what I developed, Catherine, I think, was something I call um, vulnerable optimism. Um, after I'd, I'd realised that, I came. I read Viktor Frankl, who calls it um, fragile optimism. I think he calls it fragile optimism. Basically, it's a much greater awareness of how how lucky we are, um, what a wonderful place the world is, alongside that real awareness that anything could change at any time. And I find that's quite a good way to be. All parenting is vulnerable. Yes, All parenting yes. is a depth of love and connection and a dependence that someone else is going to be okay or you're not. Uh, this is just an awful extreme experience of, of, of that of that vulnerability. But that ability to live with it is, um, as we said, a critical part of a critical part of the journey. And you found when Esther was five months old, you were able to yes, to live with it yes, more normally. Yes. There was another thing, though, I think. I realised, and this is very, very helpful, that I had, and every parent does, no doubt do something that saves a child's life every day. And we don't know we do it because nothing happens to the child. But I think we have to 
um, reassure ourselves that we are good enough parents, that we stop that child from running out in front of the road or falling in the bath or or whatever. And that's a, a very useful thing to remember. After a few months then, you began to see daylight again and sunlight again. Was it linear, however, or were there various times where you would go back into Mm, a despair? mm, And mm. what would prompt that? It was very... um, I could never never tell um, what would prompt it. I became became very... comfortable with with my life but there were a couple of things that happened that just took me right back and one I talk about in the book was when I was on a ward round in a paediatric ward in Brisbane and um, there was a we came to we were a group of us and we came to a baby who was dying for no reason and the paediatricians were very very puzzled and sad and I suddenly fainted and I spent the rest of that ward round with my head between my knees. I'm quite sure that was taking me back to sitting beside Alexander dying. So, but that was that was seven years after and uh, do I still, of course I'm still a little bit sad. I'm not triggered like that anymore. The ripples of grief also that go out when something like this happens and as you've become a grandparent you've thought more about the impact on, on, on others, right? And Again, it is so beautifully written with respect to being able to almost make us feel it to the extent we can, and we can't. Um, but but what more have you learned about the wider impact on family, and what more can we learn okay. from what you've learned? <clears throat> I, well, I was very touched when my son Simon wrote to me as an adult and said that he thought it had actually brought us closer, um, that shared experience. That was... A wonderful thing to hear from a grown son who by then was a father, so he had some understanding. I think the grandparent thing is very important, and we ignored it um, at the time. Um, his paternal grandparents turned up the day after he died, and they didn't meet him, and they were there at the funeral. My mother was in New Zealand. She didn't get to meet him or see him. And as a grandmother now, I'm very aware of that link that is uh, between grandparents and grandchildren, whether or not it's acknowledged. And presumably... His grandparents grieved, but we were too enmeshed in our own to really acknowledge that. And um, I think it's really important that um, I've said, I said something that the rope that binds grandparents to grandchildren can be heavy duty, but far often it's too often it's severed without full acknowledgement. And I think that's true. You said it's changed you, and in some ways it changed you for the better. What came out of this that has made you who you are? I had to strip myself right down to what I really was, not what I thought I was. Um, I had to um, come to the understanding that I I have a core which is very strong. Um, I had to realise the bits of me that I shouldn't be judging, and and this is true of everybody, I think, that we we do our best. And I'm strong for having come through it. I know myself a lot better. Um, I'm not a better person and I'm not a worse person but I'm a very different person because I think I know myself so much better as a result of this. Not a good way to learn about yourself of course but that's what happened. Living with grief and there is the acute grief as part of a process but there is a grief that as you say will sometimes get you or that perhaps you carry at a lower level we, we learn to live with, and again, your experience of that has been um, 
an acceptance in some ways, an acceptance at different times that this is part of you. And as you say, you don't want to forget oh, no. your no. baby. No. You want to be able to live with your experience of that loss. Uh, again, is that really what the whole story is about? Yes, I don't want to give the impression that I spend every day being sad. Um, I don't. Um, I spend most days being feeling pretty comfortable with my, with myself. Um, of course, I make huge mistakes. Um, it's living with it. It's accepting it into you as a, as a person and not trying to deny it. There's a question that people sometimes ask, which is difficult. How many children do you have? And I have to make a judgment every time about what I say. Because if I say three, well, that's true, I have three living children, but it's denying Alexander. But if I say four and if somebody says, well, who's the other one? That immediately brings up some issues that if I don't know that person at all or well, it's quite hard to handle. So I make a judicious decision about answering that question. It's nearly 40 years he went on to have this career in psychology, inaugural director of the Roy Mackenzie Centre for the Study of Families at Victoria University, former chief commissioner at the Families Commission. Um, it's been a, a remarkable career and, and now this book. The tribute that you pay at the end, the lovely chapter about what Alexander might have been. Yes. So yes. remembering him not just as the baby you knew, right. but envisaging yes. him as he might might be as you carry him now. Would you yes. like to read a little I'll, about, I'll, about that from I that will. chapter? I will, thank you. I think of how he would be now, grown up. He would be tall. Linkiness is in his genes. He would almost certainly be a brown-eyed, dark-haired, light-skinned man, since he was a brown-eyed, dark-haired, light-skinned baby. His older brother is tall, auburn-haired, light-skinned, glorious. His older and younger sisters are dark-haired, tall and glorious. It is, hard not to it is hard to imagine that he would not be glorious, but maybe not. Imagining him physically is the easy part. He would have grown up immersed in a middle-class mini-culture that assumed he would go to university. Perhaps he would have rebelled, left school and home early, taken his 21st century version of a knapsack and pursued his questions and dreams in less conventional ways. He might have taken drugs that addled his brain. He might have fathered a child at 17 or 15. He might have gone to prison. He might have been autistic. He might have been an artist, a musician, a writer, an actor. He will be none of these things. All his possible futures, his potential lives, died with him. We're closed in that small white coffin. But I can't help wondering. It's a beautiful, beautiful book, Jan. Thank you. And the launch tonight, Thursday night, Women's Bookshop. In Auckland. Auckland. Thank yes. you. Yes. Talk again soon. Okay. Jan Pryor, after Alexander, the legacy of a son, headed in publishing The Publishers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 